recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, October 25th, 2013. <clears throat> I have a frog in my voice already, I'm sorry. Tonight we will commence immediately with the book of Acts, chapter 17. I have a lot of notes for this program, and because of that, I'm going to um, probably not discuss a lot of the different variations in the manuscripts. Most of them belong to the Codex Beze. There are a few minor variations in some of the others in, in this chapter, well, in all chapters, but the Codex Beze and sometimes the majority text upon which the King James is based and the later Codex Laudianus have most of the variations. The Vaticanists, the Sinaiticanists, that they're, um, and the older papyri where, where they where they have witnessed the parts of Acts, they're the ones that they're the manuscripts I would rather follow because they seem to be they seem to be by far the most um the most consistent. As a youth, it is fully evident that Paul of Tarsus had a solid education in scripture, or at least as good an education as could be obtained in first century Judea, as he himself professed that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now we know that the Judeans, the, the Pharisees especially, that they um, had a lot of shortcomings in their teachings of Scripture. That didn't stop a young man, an ambitious young man like Paul of Tarsus, from reading and studying on his own. While it is not explicitly confessed in his own words, it is certainly manifest throughout his epistles that Paul also had an extensive education in the profane writings of the classical world, what we today would consider the Greco-Roman classics. Paul quoted writers such as Aratus, we'll see that here in this chapter, and Epimenides, in his epistle to Titus, and also possibly Euripides in the later chapters of Acts, and Heraclitus. Paul drew analogies from Homer in Romans chapter 11, and from Xenophon in his second epistle to the Corinthians. However, this education... in the classical literature, did not merely assist his rhetorical skill or his writing ability. It was much greater than that. More importantly, Paul understood the origins of the nations of Europe in a way that only those who have deeply studied both scripture and the classical literature can understand. A study of the book of Acts. And Paul's epistles demonstrates as much. But one can only see this if one also has studied those things which Paul studied. While not all of the writings which Paul had available are also available to us in this day, there are a lot of lost works. Many of them are indeed. And with them, we find the proofs of the Christian identity message. 
Here in Acts chapter 17, and in Paul's message to the Athenians, we shall indeed see a good part of those proofs. And that's where the bulk of this presentation will lie tonight. From Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Paul and his company have just left Philippi. And traveling through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was an assembly hall of the Judeans. Strabo, in the ninth book of his geography, tells us that Thessaly, that's where Paul is traveling through, Thessaly, the central part, of mainland Greece on the side of the Aegean Sea, was in early times populated by the same Phoenicians who built the Greek city of Thebes. There was even a river in the area named the Phoenix. However, the Pulaskians were said to have inhabited the area originally. And when they were pushed out, they went on to northern Italy and into the Alps. But the Pulaskians inhabited the area even before the mythical flood of Deucalion, after which they were said to have been driven out. Strabo says later in that same book, Book 9 of his geography, now the largest and most ancient composite part of, Gre of the Greeks is that of the Thessalians, who have been described partly by Homer and partly by others. Thessaly became part of the Macedonian kingdom from the 4th century BC. And later, because of that, it was part of the Roman province of Macedonia. Amphipolis, mentioned here in verse 1, was also a notable city. Diodorus Siculus lists four cantons. He breaks Thessaly into four cantons. Amphipolis was the chief city of the first canton. Thessalonica was the chief city of the second, counting east to west. The remaining two cantons, the remaining two chief cities, the chief cities of the remaining two cantons were Pella and Pelagonia. Pelagonia, of course, that name would be a remnant of the Pelasgians. Whether Pelasgians inhabited it or not, I'm not sure. I, I haven't researched that for this program. Thessalonica, the city, was called Therme or Therma in ancient times. Both Herodotus and Thucydides refer to it by that name. The town is said to have been renamed by Cassander of Macedon, circa 315 BC, for his wife, Thessalonica, whose name apparently means Thessalian victory. It may be pronounced Thessalian victory. After the Battle of Philippi, and the wars of the Second Triumvirate against Julius Caesar's assassins had ended with the victory of the Triumvirate in the auspices in, 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 under Octavian and Mark Antony, about 42 BC, Thessalonica was made a free city. The designation meant that it was self-governed within the empire. Athens was also a free city. And it elected its own rulers and magistrates 
rather than have them appointed from Rome. The Christian assembly which Paul founded there was the later recipient to at least two of Paul's epistles, now known as First and Second Thessalonians in our Bibles. It is evident that those two epistles were written within a short time of each other, and the first certainly seems to have been written from Corinth, for which we may compare 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 with Acts 18.5. 1 Thessalonians, therefore, Paul writing it from Corinth, seems to be the earliest of Paul's surviving epistles. And 2 Thessalonians may indeed be the second earliest of his surviving epistles. Verse 2, Paul in Thessalonica. And as was customary with Paul, he entered into them for three Sabbaths, and for three Sabbaths argued with them from the writings, explaining and presenting that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to be resurrected from the dead, and that this is Christ Yahshua whom I declare to you. And some from among them believed and put their lot with Paul and Silas. Also a great multitude of the pious Greeks, the Codex Alexandrinus has, of the pious and Greeks. Of the women, and not a few of the leaders, here once again we see that some from among them, meaning some of the Judeans had accepted Paul's message, and some of the Judeans did not. We have witnessed this from Acts chapters 13 and 14. In every Judean assembly which Paul is recorded as having visited. Therefore, the simple-minded interpretation of Jew versus Gentile which the mainstream denominational sects make in considering the spread of Christianity, that interpretation is fully discredited by the book of Acts, time after time after time. There must be a reason for the division amongst the Judeans themselves. And the mainstream denominational sects never address that reason even though it is spelled out in both the Gospels and in Paul's epistles. As Christ explicitly told certain of the leaders in the temple, as it is recorded in John chapter 10, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, and they are not lost forever, and one shall not snatch them from my hand. Christ did not tell them, as the denominational sects like to imagine, that you are not my sheep because you do not believe. But rather he told them, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Paul explains the reasons for this division in Romans chapter 9. And history proves that his explanation is correct. 
that the people in Judea who rejected Christ were of the seed of the Edomites and not of the seed of Israel. The denominational sects love to claim Paul as their own, yet they do not understand this division which they purposely mischaracterize in spite of the fact that Paul pointed it out very explicitly. Verse 5. Then the Judeans, being jealous and taking certain wicked men from the markets, making a riot, threw the city into confusion, and coming upon the house of Jason, sought them to lead them before the people. Jason is a Judean, ostensibly, and a member of this assembly hall. Jason is a Greek name. I just thought I'd point that out. It's a very famous Greek name, being the name of one of the first Greek heroes of the epic cycle, the hero of the story of Jason and the Argonauts, which portrayed events that, according to most sources, happened several generations before the Trojan War one of the oldest Greek, surviving Greek stories. The Judeans sought to lead them before the people in order to once again take advantage of secular law in order to persecute Christianity. For reasons political as well as historical, the religion of the Judeans was officially tolerated as a separate religion within the empire. Here we see in all of these assemblies which Paul visits that they are attended by Greeks as well as Judeans. If Christianity were accepted as just another sect of the Judean religion, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, it too would be tolerated by Rome. However, the Judeans themselves were divided, and the unbelieving Judeans, who were ostensibly the Edomite Jews, which is the distinction that is made in Scripture itself, were able to convince the Romans that Christianity was not merely a Judean sect and that it was a form of sedition against Rome because Christians believed Christ to be king. Therefore, Edomite Judaism denied the Old Testament from its very beginnings because they rejected the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, which Christ certainly was. And which all the people were expecting at the time he was born. Verse 6. And not finding them, they dragged Jason and some brethren before the rulers of the city, crying that they who have been upsetting the inhabited world are also come here, whom Jason received. And they all act against the decrees of Caesar, declaring Yahshua to be another king. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city hearing these things. Yet, taking security from Jason and the others, they released them. That word rendered security is literally simply taking enough. Where the Greek word hikanos, Strong's 2425, surely infers the taking of something sufficient for bail or as a pledge. And Liddell and Scott mention this idiom in their Greek lexicon, as does Joseph Thayer, 
who defines the phrase very similar to the phrase that appears here, taking sufficient or taking enough or taking security, as I have rendered it, to hikanon lambano, as to take security either by accepting sponsors or by a deposit of money until the case had been decided. And he points out this very verse. And therefore, the more colloquial taking bail would also have been acceptable. The issue of this case is never reported in Acts. However, and, and this is conjectural, perhaps Jason was treated with leniency because Thessalonica was a free city and it had its own Greek magistrates rather than having magistrates who were appointed from Rome, the Greeks being more tolerant of different philosophies. It is evident that neither the persecution nor the case pressed against him by the Judeans had deterred Jason. This Jason is apparently also the Jason of Romans chapter 16, verse 21, who was among those with Paul when the famous epistle to the Romans was written. I had once suspected that the epistle to, Rome, to the Romans may have been penned from Greece, Acts chapter 20, verse 2, where Corinth is very close to the port city of Cancrea, or perhaps even from Macedonia or to Troad, Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, a woman named Phoebe, who was from Cancrea, which was near Corinth, delivered Paul's epistle to the Romans, Acts and, and that's mentioned in Romans 16, verse 1. However, comparing the names of the men with Paul and the Troad in Acts chapter 20, verse 6, to that of the salutation at the end of the epistle to the Romans, the Troad is the most likely place from which the epistle was written. And I can say that with quite, with quite certainty. It is also poetically ironic because the Romans themselves were descendants of the ancient Trojans. They came from the Troad. It seems, comparing Romans chapter 16 with Acts 20 verse 6, that the epistle also came from the Troad and went to Rome. Once again, the Judeans, rejecting Christ, attempted to have Christians tried for sedition as they did with Christ himself. And for which reason the Romans in Philippi, as recorded in Acts chapter 16, had declared that it was unlawful for them to accept the Christian faith. This reflects the reason why, I believe, in our modern society, in our modern history, the Jews have for 200 years advanced the cause of humanism, while at the same time they have promoted every non-Christian religion as they seek to marginalize Christianity entirely. At the same time, they have infiltrated Christianity and diluted or even destroyed its practice from within. The Jew could never rule over a Christian people. But the usurers... The panderers and the perverts of world history have always ruled over non-Christian peoples. And they did quite well in Rome. 
their influence was such that their religion, a perversion of Hebrew scriptures, and I'm sure that the hand, it, it's absolutely evident that the hand of God was with, with this also. The extent of their influence is shown because Judaism was a tolerated religion within the empire. Verse 10. Then the brethren forthwith sent off Paul and Silas by night to Beroia, who departed arriving in the assembly hall of the Judeans. Surviving fragments of Book 7 of Strabo's geography only give the approximate location of Beroia. However, Diodorus Siculus calls it a notable city. It's still there today. It's the modern Veroia. The B became a V. V-E-R-O-I-A. And it's nearly 72 kilometers, or nearly 45 miles, west of Thessalonica by modern roads, and somewhat inland from the agency. These assembly halls, which Paul visits, mean more to him than having a place to spread the gospel message. Although that, of course, is the reason for his travels, such assembly halls were also accompanied by lodges to accommodate Judean travelers. Ostensibly, Paul would find lodging at the assembly hall at least until the Sabbath following his arrival. An inscription found on one such assembly hall which many believe to be the very assembly hall mentioned in Acts chapter 6, verse 9, that of the Libertines, said in Greek, and I read this when we presented Acts 6, Theodotus, son of Vitenus, priest and assembly hall leader, son of an assembly hall leader, grandson of an assembly hall leader, rebuilt this assembly hall for the reading of the law and the teaching of the commandments. And the hostelry, rooms and baths for the lodging of those who have need from abroad. It was established by his forefathers, the elders, and Simonides. That inscription is a famous archaeological relic. It gives us insight into the way the Judean assembly halls operated. Of course, being a Judean, you couldn't really stay in a profane Roman or Greek in and keep the law because they ate pork, they ate seafood, that they didn't clean their utensils according to the laws of the Judeans because Judeans weren't supposed to dine with the uncircumcised or to have communion with the uncircumcised. So it was necessary for Judeans who wanted to travel from city to city within the Roman Empire, especially merchants and people that traveled all the time, it was necessary for them to have places where they could repair which kept the law. So the assembly halls functioned as travel lodges as well as assembly halls which is the importance of Paul's arriving in a city and noting that it was an assembly hall of the Judeans that meant 
that he had a place where he could lodge. When he arrived in Philippi, Philippi didn't have such a place. It probably didn't have a large enough Judean population to support one. So fortunately, he was able to stay in the home of a belief of a woman whom he converted to Christianity, right? At, at a prayer session by the river, which is why he went to the river. Lydia. Verse 11. These, meaning the people of Beroia, these were of a more noble race than those in Thessalonica, who accepted the word with all eagerness. Each day examining the writings, if these things would hold thusly. So we see what Paul and Luke would expect of somebody who's told something from Scripture, regardless of the, of, of the presumed authority that the bearer of the message has. Those who hear something they're told from Scripture should verify it in Scripture. To do that, one exhibits his better breeding, according to Luke, because these what this is what these men did, and Luke attested that they were of a more noble race than those men in Thessalonica, because they accepted the word and also because they examined the writings to see if these things would hold thusly. So the many from among them believed, and of the noble Greek women and men, not a few. And we see once again in Beroia, the assembly hall is attended by Judeans, and it's also attended by Greeks. The Greek word, eugenesteros, means of a more noble race. The word is of is a superlative form of eugenes. Eugenes is well-born. It's Strong's number 2104. It means well-born to be of noble race or of high descent, according to Liddell and Scott. The reference, is to the, the, the reference is to the Judean population in the assembly hall at Beroia as compared with the Judeans of Thessalonica, where we see that Luke esteemed as Paul explains in Romans chapter 9, that there were more than one race of people who considered themselves to be Judeans, that Judeans differed from other Judeans. That's very clear here in Luke's statement. And that many Judeans, and here those of a more noble race, had indeed accepted the gospel of Christ. And as the Judeans from Thessalonica learned that the word of Yahweh was also declared in, by Paul in Beroia, they came there also, stirring up and agitating the crowds. And here we can observe the tendency of the enemies of Christ towards tactics which may be labeled Bolshevik, which those same people have exhibited all throughout history. These Judeans from Thessalonica pursued Paul for what was perhaps a two-day journey, the distance being nearly 45 miles. On the main roads of the empire, 
which Paul has been following. A Roman carriage would typically, typically cover 25 to 30 miles in a day. Couriers on horseback were expected to travel as many as 50 miles in a day. Could these men make that trip in one day? Yeah, if they were on horseback. Ostensibly, it was a two-day journey. Paul evidently received no resistance or threats in Beroia from the Judeans who resided there, but only from the agitators who came from Thessalonica. However, while Paul left Beroia, Timothy and Silas still felt safe enough to remain in Beroia, evidently to advance the cause of the gospel as we see in verse 14. Christ warned the apostles, when they persecute you in one city, flee to another. You will not exhaust the cities of Israel before the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 14. And then at once the brethren sent Paul away to go as far as to the sea, which was a trip from Beroia, but both Silas and Timotheus, or Timothy, remained there. But those conducting Paul led him to Athens. And they went out, taking an order to Silas and Timothy that they should come to him quickly. So Paul got to Athens, and he immediately sent for Silas and for Timothy. Then upon Paul's awaiting them in Athens, his spirit within him was irritated, observing that the city was given to idolatry. And Athens was given to incredible idolatry. We're going to explain that at length here. The Athenians, by all historic accounts, were Ionian Greeks, as opposed to the Danan Greeks, the Dorian Greeks, the Pelasgians, and other lesser-known tribes, which were for the most part either Phoenicians or early divisions of these others. For example, Stalo informs us that the Aeolians were a branch of the Dorians. Stalo says of the Greek language, and I quote from Geography Book 8, but though the dialects themselves are four in number, we may say that the Ionic is the same as the ancient Attic. For the, meaning the people of Athens who dwelt in Attica. For the Attic people of ancient times were called Ionians. And from that stock sprang those Ionians who colonized Asia and used what is now called the Ionic speech. And we may say that the Doric dialect is the same as the Aeolic. For all the Greeks outside the Isthmus except the Athenians and the Megarians and the Dorians who live about Parnassus are to this day still called Aeolians. Of the land of the Athenians, Strabo says, and I quote again from Book 8 of his geography, Chapter 1, this was the case with the Athenians. That is, they lived in a country that was both thin-soiled and rugged, and for this reason, according to Thucydides, Thucydides was an Athenian general in the Peloponnesian War, and also a quite famous historian whose work survives to us. 
According to Thucydides, their country remained free from devastation, and they were regarded as an indigenous people who always occupied the same country since no one drove them out or even desired to possess it. Strabo says elsewhere in his writing that in early times, Attica was called Ionia, quoting Book 9 of the geography. And speaking of Homer, Strabo says that he calls all of the people of Attica Athenians, where Strabo is endeavoring to show that the Megarians were also Ionians before the city called Megara was actually founded. Now in the Hebrew lexicon, which is included with Strong's Concordance, under the Hebrew word for Javan, which we find in Genesis chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 2, Javan being one of the sons of Japheth, or Japheth, we find that that tribe is identified by Strong with the Ionian Greeks. As the Septuagint translators also did, rendering the Hebrew word Yavan or Yawan, Strong's number 3120, as Iowan or Yowan, That is not, that identification is not out of fancy. On the Behistun rock and other Eastern inscriptions, the Ionian Greeks are called Yavana, Y-A-V-A-N-A, practically the same word as the Hebrew from which the King James translators got Javan. And Sir Henry Rawlinson, in his translation of the Behistun rock, wrote Ionians for the word Yavana in his famous translation of that inscription. Other Persian inscriptions assure the same connection. So do the Hebrew prophets, where Ezekiel writes of the, in his lamentation of Tyre, Dan and Javan going to and fro in thy fairs. He's referring to the Danan Greeks and the Ionian Greeks. These Ionians settled the coasts of western Anatolia, modern Turkey, and many of its islands. Besides the Phoenicians who were first settled there in western Anatolia, and that land generally came to be called Ionia, which was the western portion of the land which the Romans called Asia, as well as being the founders and principal inhabitants of the city of Athens and the land of Attica. While we can indeed identify the original source of the Ionians in Scripture, it must be remembered that there are 2,500 years between the time of the flood of Noah and the first surviving written records of the Greeks, according to the Septuagint chronology. There were 800 years between the time of Moses and the earliest surviving written records of the Greeks, according to any chronology. Therefore, the Ionians, the memory of their settlement long having been lost, 
only considered themselves to be indigenous, as Thucydides says, and as Homer quotes, and I'm sorry, as Strabo quotes. They considered themselves to be indigenous as opposed to the other tribes of the Greeks, whose arrival in the area was much later, and who were generally considered to be invaders. The Dorians, the Danans, and the Phoenicians, they were invaders in the Greeks according to all Greek historical records. Ancient Athens was completely destroyed by the Persians in their attempt to conquer the Greeks after the war. And this is 480 BC, right? After the war, the city was completely rebuilt under the auspices of its great general, Pericles who was called the first citizen of Athens by his contemporary and admirer, the historian Thucydides. Pericles' father was a controversial Athenian politician and a general victorious against the Persians in the famous Battle of Mycalae. His mother descended from an ancient noble Athenian family. He himself was instrumental in the rebuilding of Athens and initiated the construction of the Acropolis and its most famous edifice, the Parthenon. The Parthenon was the Temple of Athena, which became known by one of her attributes, that of eternal virginity, Athena the Maiden, Athena the Virgin, Eternal virginity was an object of pagan idolatry, which was much later and very incorrectly attributed to the mother of Christ, an idea which the gospel clearly refutes. The Greek word parthenos refers to a maiden or to a virgin. Under Pericles, who was a relentless promoter of the arts and literature, Athens very, quick, very quickly became the cultural and educational center of the Greek world, an idolatrous pagan world. And this was recognized as early as the Peloponnesian War, not seven decades after the Persians had raised the city, totally destroying it, flat to the ground. Athens was the cultural and educational center of the Greek world. That's recorded. It's recorded about the year 413 B.C. After the Dorians of Syracuse, Syracuse is on Sicily, the Athenians tried to take it. it they failed, right? The, Syri the people of Syracuse were Dorian Greeks. They came from Sparta, Corinth, the Peloponnese. After the Dorians of Syracuse had won a major battle over the Athenians in the Peloponnesian War, the treatment of the captive armies was debated at Syracuse. In a famous speech from that debate, recorded in the words of Thucydides, Plutarch, Diodorus Siculus, and probably elsewhere, an old man named Nicholas, who himself lost two sons in a war, pled for moderation on the part of the victors. The speech is quite long. However, in part, 
This is what he said about Athens. It will help us reveal how great a center of idolatry Athens was and how quickly, after it had been completely raised by the Persians around 480 B.C. All you who in that city had participated in its eloquence and learning show mercy to men who offer their country as a school for the common use of mankind. And do you all who have taken part in the most holy mysteries, we'll get to them in a minute, save the lives of those who initiated you, some by way of showing gratitude for kindly services already received and others who look forward to partaking of them, not in anger depriving yourselves of that hope, in other words, by destroying Athens totally. Nicholas talking to the victorious Dorians. For what place is there to which foreigners may resort for a liberal education once the city of the Athenians has been destroyed? Brief is the hatred aroused by the wrong they have committed. But more important than many are their accomplishments which claim goodwill. That's from Theodore Siculus, Library of History, Book 13, Chapter 27. Evidently, the soldiers, according to Plutarch, nevertheless ended up as prisoners working in the quarries of Syracuse. The reference to the most holy mysteries is to the Eleusinian mysteries, which were pagan Greek religious rituals connected to the idols Demeter and Dionysius. At one time, the rites were limited to native citizens of Attica, but after the Persian War, the laws were changed so that they were open to all Greeks, attracting all Greeks to Athens in order to become initiated. There were several other competing pagan mystery cults among the Greeks. The Eleusinian Mysteries was one of the most popular. Throughout the writings of Strabo, other great cities such as Tarsus and Massilia, the modern Marseille, were compared to Athens as a measure of their cultural and educational achievement. In his geography, after describing the, uh, the environs of Athens and edifices such as the temple of Zeus Soter, which means Zeus or God, Savior, which was found near the harbor of Athens, Strabo says this, and I quote, Strabo's description of Athens from Geography Book 9. The city itself is a rock, situated on a plain and surrounded by dwellings. On the rock is the sacred precinct of Athena, comprising both the old temple of Athena Polias, in which is the lamp that is never quenched, and the Parthenon built by Ictinus, which is the work in in which is the work in ivory by Phidus, or Phidias. The Athena, the Athena was a statue, an ivory statue made by Phidias. However, if I once began to describe the multitude of things in this city that are lauded and proclaimed far and wide, I fear that I should go too far, and that my work would depart from the purpose I have in view. For the words of Hegesias occur to me, 
And Strabo quotes Hegesius where he says, I see the, the Acropolis and the mark of the huge trident there. I see Eleusis, and I have become an initiate into its sacred mysteries. Yonder is the Leocorium. Here is the Thessium. Thessium. I am unable to point them all out one by one, for Attica is the possession of the gods who seized it as a sanctuary for themselves and of the ancestral heroes. Strabo, ending his quote from Hegesius, goes on to say, so this writer mentioned only one of the significant things on the Acropolis, but Palamon, the Peregid, wrote four books on the dedicatory offerings on the Acropolis alone. Strabo is, that's Strabo's testimony that one man wrote four books on the temples and altars of the Acropolis alone and its dedicatory offerings, the things which were offered to those temples. Hegesius, back to Strabo, Hegesius is proportionately brief in referring to the other parts of the city and to the country. And though he mentions Eleusis, one of the 170 deems, a deem being a, 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 a district, a ward, a, a large neighborhood, right? A ward. Or 174, as the number is given, he names none of the others. Most, and I'm continuing with Strabo, most of the deems, if not all, have numerous stories of a character, both mythical and historical, connected with them. Aphidna, for example, has the rape of Helen by Theseus, the sacking of the place by the Dioscuri, and the recovery of their sister. Marathon has the Persian battle. Ramnus has the statue of Nemesis, which by some is called the work of Diodotus, and by others of Agoracritus the Parian, a work which both in grandeur and in beauty is a, success, is a great success and rivals the works of Phidias. And so with the Decalia, the base of operations of the Peloponnesians in the Decalian War, and in Phile, whence Thrasybulus brought the popular party back to the Pyrrhias and then to the city. And so also, in the case of several other deems, there are many historical incidents to tell. And further, the Leocorium and the Thessium, Thessium, it should be Thessium, T-H-E-S-E-I-U-M, have myths connected with them. And so has the Lyceum and the Olympicum, which the king who dedicated it left half, half finished at his death. And in like manner also the Academia, and the gardens of the philosophers, and the Odium, and the colonnade called Poikile, and the temples in the city containing very many marvelous works of different artists. Of course, Strabo died probably about 25 years before Paul visited Athens. And that's how he describes the city. With its many statues and other works of art and temples 
and dedicatory offerings, great things which were offered to the temples, its idols. The city was filled with them. With all of this, it may be easy to see why Paul was so disturbed with the idolatry of Athens. Where over a period of 500 years, and the city was raised to the ground 500 years before this, every idol, every idol's temple, and so many related statues, paintings, and associated pagan religious rites and philosophies had collected themselves. The modern equivalent, and I have to note this, the modern equivalent to ancient Athens is found in many cities today that promote themselves as tourist meccas and which fill themselves with all sorts of idolatrous attractions or distractions, which today are even franchised and replicated as they also were in the ancient world. There was a temple of Diana in Corinth. There was a temple of Diana in Ephesus. There were temples of Diana all over the place. There were temples of Zeus all over the place. It was like franchises, like we have Ripley's Believe It or Not all over the place in, in all sorts of cities which are tourist destinations today. So we have the Temple to Ripley's in 500 different cities in America, where the Greeks had 500 different temples of Zeus, perhaps. Ready examples today are found in art museums or wax museums. Monuments to historical events or objects of nature, or the many museums or other spectacles dedicated to the so-called celebrities or films or folk characters or aspects of culture, or even lifestyles, or museums dedicated or, or, or amusements dedicated to inanimate objects such as automobiles and ships, all of which now litter many of our so-called tourist destinations. Paul would have been just as disturbed at those and would have seen them as idolatry just the same. Verse 17. So then he argued in the assembly hall with the Judeans and the worshipers, where once again the worshipers, as compared to the Judeans, once again we see that there were Greeks attending the Judean assembly hall in Athens, just as we've seen in every other city. And in the marketplace, throughout each day with those who happened by. And even some of the Epicureans and the Stoics, loving wisdom, engaged with him. And some said, what does this babbler mean to say? Referring to Paul as a babbler. But others, he seems to be a declarer of strange gods, because he announced Yahshua and the resurrection. The Greek word rendered gods here, dahimonion, demon, and not theos. A demon was the word for a spirit being which was perceived to be a lesser god. The Codex Beze wants the words rendered because he announced Yahshua and the resurrection. Several other codexes Codices, including the majority text, insert to them at the end of the phrase. The Epicureans. The Epicureans were materialists. And like the Judean Sadducees, 
They rejected things spiritual and the idea of divine intervention in human affairs. However, they are also misunderstood today. Since while they did regard pleasure as good, they rejected hedonism, profligacy, and lasciviousness in favor of modesty and a simple lifestyle, and to seek the simple pleasures of life. The Stoics saw displays of emotion as lapses in judgment, unworthy of the wise and, and the intelligent. The Stoics would not have liked Christ when he drove the money changers out of the temple. <laughs> the Stoics promoted a virtuous and moral lifestyle, however. While they believed that virtue was in accord with nature, and that all immorality is harmful corruption, their philosophy bound human freedom within the framework of cause and effect determinism, and therefore their outlook was without the will of God and the predestination of man, which a Christian worldview should place before cause and effect determinism. Because, I mean, there are things that, things in the law of God, punishments in the law of God that are simply cause and effect, and, and that's fine, but the will of God and his plan for us would prevail even over that. Stoicism was highly popular amongst the most educated and elite of the Greco-Roman world, where it is evident that these men thought Paul of Tarsus to be a babbler. Three centuries later, Christians would be tearing down their schools and their idols. Once again today, the so-called educated and the elite look upon Christians as babblers. I can't wait till we get to tear down their schools and their idols. Verse 19. Then, seizing him, they led him to Ayers Hill. The King James Version simply has Areopagus there. It did not translate the Greek words. Saying, are we able to know what this new doctrine is, which is being spoken by you? For you have brought some astonishing things into our ears. Therefore, we wish to know what these things are meant to be. The translation in the Christian, Christogenian New Testament is as exactly literal as I could make it. Concerning Ayers Hill, or the Arias Pagas, as the phrase is commonly considered to mean the hill of heirs. Yet the original etymology, according to the rather learned James Fraser in his Loeb Classical Library editions of both Apollodorus and Pausanias, may instead be the hill of curses. The word heirs, who was actually a Greek god, right? Being from the word ara, or cognate with the word ara which is a prayer or a curse. We see that word in Greek in Romans 3.14, Strong's number 685. So James Fraser believed that the Arias Pagus, that was actually the hill of curses from that word ara. Yet the equally learned George Rawlinson calls it Ayers Hill in a footnote in his edition of Herodotus at Herodotus' Histories, Book 8, 
paragraph 52, where he says, and I quote, Heirs Hill, the seat of the celebrated court of the Areopagus, or the court of Heirs Hill, if you will, made still more famous by the preaching of St. Paul, citing Acts 17.22, is one of the features of Athenian topography which cannot be mistaken. The end of Rawlinson's quote. The poet Euripides says in reference to the place, and I quote from his poem Electra, lines 1258 through 1263, there is a place called Ayers Hill, where the gods first sat in judgment in a case of murder, when cruel heirs killed Poseidon's son, Hauerathius, in anger for his daughter's rape. Here, ever since then, votes are cast in a God-fearing and incorruptible manner, according to Euripides. Fraser's thesis is not without merit. In the ancient world, the ideas of vows, curses, oaths, and as we use our own synonymous word in English today, to swear. We could swear an oath or we could say a swear word, right? The act of swearing are all closely linked. And the later sense in the times of Herodotus and Euripides may well have been an embellishment, the myth being invented to whimsically account for the name. That's a possibility. Verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the sojourning guests spent their leisure time for nothing other than to say something or to hear something more novel. In the words of the ancient Greeks themselves, we have seen the fame of Athens in regard to philosophy and how men from all over the Greco-Roman world flocked to it for either an education or to become initiated in the pagan mystery cults. It's quite possible that on every street corner in ancient Athens, there was a philosopher promoting some new idea or some recycled idea. The Greek word xenos is guest here in verse 21. It's not a stranger as an alien. The word is a guest friend. It's any citizen of a foreign state with whom one has a treaty of hospitality for himself and his heirs. A xenos is a guest friend. It's somebody who comes into your land who expects to be treated in a certain manner, hospitably. Even though the word was also used to designate a stranger or foreigner, and the term was politely used of anyone whose name was unknown, the word must be contrasted to the other words which may be translated as stranger or foreigner, such as elotrios or alogenes, which is used elsewhere in the New Testament. And those words refer to an alien or someone from another race, but Zenos does not. Throughout his Loeb Classical Library edition of the works of Euripides, which he translated in the late 1990s and the first 
that the opening years of this millennium, David Kovacs, University of Virginia, renders Zenos as guest friend wherever it appears as a noun. He never writes stranger for it. He always writes guest friend. Verse 22, then Paul, standing in the middle of the hill of air, said, Men, Athenians, I observe that in all respects you are most superstitious. Now, being called superstitious at this time is not necessarily an, an insult. The adjective, dicey daemon, means fearing the demons or fearing the gods in a good sense. Verse 23, for passing through and considering your objects of worship, I found even an altar upon which was inscribed to the unknown God. So that which is unknown, now the Codex Laudianus and the majority text have, so he whom is unknown, the masculine instead of the neuter pronoun. So that which is unknown, you reverence. This I declare to you. God who made the cosmos and all the things in it, he being prince of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hand. Neither is he attended by the hands of men, being in need of anything, himself giving to all life and breath and all things. Now, while I have not found a precise mention of the altar or temple to which Paul refers, several earlier Greek writers indeed were indeed said to have mentioned its existence. There is a story of the building of such an altar in Athens related to an account concerning the Cretan poet, philosopher, and prophet, yes, he's a prophet, named Epimenides, He's a prophet because he's the same poet that Paul quotes concerning the Cretans. The Cretans are always liars. In his epistle to Titus, where Paul calls him a prophet. However, Paul is not explaining that this unknown god of the Athenians was intended by them to refer to the god of Scripture. Rather, here Paul is using the unknown god of the Athenians, as a rhetorical device by which to introduce the god of Scripture, since by their own admission there were gods who were unknown to them. The word cosmos, I've left untranslated in this passage. Since there were times when its use transcends the frequent Greek reference to the adornment of the oikumene. The word cosmos primarily means order or decency or the form or fashion of something or a decoration or an embellishment upon something, among other things. While cosmos often refers only in context to the order of the oikumene, the Greek, the Greco-Roman living space. And therefore, in those cases, it's translated as society in the Christogenian New Testament. Here, where Paul says, God who made the cosmos and all the things in it, 
Paul seems to use the word in reference to the order of existence itself. So I thought it better to leave it untranslated. Verse 26. And he made from one nation, I'm sorry, and he made from one every nation of men to dwell upon the face of all the earth, appointing the times ordained and the boundaries of their settlements to seek God. If surely then they would seek after him, then they would find him. And indeed, he being not far from each one of us, the Codex Alexandrinus has from each one of you. Now the codices Beze, 5th century, Laudianus, 5th century, and the majority text have from one blood. The text of the Christogonian New Testament follows the 4th century codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and also agrees with the 5th century Codex Alexandrinus in this instance. But whether the, whether the reading, which includes the word for blood, is accepted or not, is immaterial. It doesn't matter. The phrase, from one, can only mean from Adam, through Noah, he being the father of no other race but the Adamic race, which is the Caucasian or the white race. How do we know that? Because all of the nations of Genesis chapter 10 were originally white, which is demonstrated from a study of scripture in concert with both history and archaeology. Likewise, the phrase, every nation of men, can only refer to the white race, since only one race of people descended from the patriarchs. The word man in the New Testament should be understood to refer to only the Adamic man, or the white race, as Paul himself demonstrates in his letters to the Romans in chapter 5, and to the Corinthians in chapter 15. Paul says in Romans 5.14, but death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not committed an error resembling the transgression of Adam, who is an image of the future. Therefore, even as though through the, the disobedience of one man the many were set down as wrongdoers, in this manner through the obedience of one the many will be established as righteous. So we see that Adam and man are equated. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive the promises only being to the Adamic race. The wisdom of Sirach, verse 40, chapter 40, verse 1. Great travail is created for every man, and a heavy yoke is upon the sons of Adam. Every man and the sons of Adam being equated from the day that they go out of their mother's womb till the day that they return to the mother of all things. A reference, a philosophical reference to the earth. These scriptures attest the biblical equation of the words for man with the Adamic race. Although there were hominids before him, Adam was the first man, according to Paul. The first man, Adam. And in Adam, all men die, according to Paul. As according to the wisdom of Sirach, all men, meaning the sons of Adam, have a burden of travail. Yet if from the earliest times, 
We men have made the mistake of calling non-Adamic hominids after the terms for man. It is not in order with the creation of God or with Scripture for men to have ever done such a thing. This idea is not novel, not even in modern times. For in the fifth in the fifth paperback edition of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, copyright 1994 by Merriam-Webster Incorporated, ISBN 0-87779-911-3. Under the entry for man, we find the explanation that the word man, often capitalized, is a reference to white society or people. There were three general terms translated man from Hebrew, Adam, Enosh, and Ish. The word Adam has racial connotation. The words Enosh and Ish do not. The word Adam is used either as a verb, a noun, a proper noun, or an adjective in Hebrew. And the verb is defined by Strong in his Hebrew Dictionary, as to show blood in the face, to flush or turn rosy. And therefore, it can only refer to white people. The Hebrew word Adam is an adjective means ruddy because the Hebrew word dam means blood. Hebrew Strong's Hebrew number 1818. And it was used in that manner four times in Scripture in 1 Samuel 16.12. In 1 Samuel 17, 42, in both of those passages, David the king is described as being ruddy. In Song of Solomon 5.10, where Solomon is described by his wife as being ruddy. And Lamentations chapter 4, verse 7, where Jeremiah describes the Nazarites in Jerusalem as being ruddy. The Hebrew people were indeed white, which can be demonstrated in Scripture and in history. We have already offered documentation from Scripture and history in that regard in our presentation of Acts chapter 11. The word Enosh. The word Enosh refers to the mortal man. And sometimes Adamic people are referred to by this term, being Adam and being mortal, mortal hominids. Genesis 14.24, 17.23, and several other times in those chapters are Adamic men referenced as Enosh. Yet often the word Enosh is used disparagingly of non-Adamic people or people of mixed blood, where these are seen as a destructive force. One specific example of this is at Daniel 2.43, where we are told that the iron mixed with clay is the mixing of Adamic people, which is the word for men in Daniel 2.38, with the seed of Enosh, which is the word for men in Daniel 2.43. And therefore, Rome fell because the empire was partly strong and partly broken, Daniel 2.42. In other places in Scripture, it's quite clear, Isaiah 56.9, Jeremiah 31.27, Leviticus chapter 20, 
about sexual relations. Deuteronomy 27, Hebrews 12, and 2 Peter chapter 2, and Jude verse 10. Ostensibly, non-Adamic peoples are referred to as simply beasts, <clears throat> the word being used as a pejorative. There is no place in Scripture which affords non-whites, which are non-Adamic beings, the status of an Adamic man. Seeing that every nation of men was made from one, according to Paul, we have an obligation to go back into the scripture to which he is referring in order to see what he means. Doing that, we shall find that the Genesis 10 nations, the only nations which were made from one, meaning Adam, were all white nations. Critics will say, well, what about Egypt or, e or Ethiopia? They're not white. Today, they're not. Yet, alien races cannot be squeezed into this picture of Genesis chapter 10 if Genesis chapter 10 does not put them into this picture when it was written. And it is certain that alien nations shall not be found in Genesis chapter 10, except that many nations have been overrun by aliens since that time. Therefore, the word of God spoken to Israel in Isaiah chapter 43 says of Egypt, Sheba, and Ethiopia, and I'll quote from verse 3, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia, and Sheba for thee. Since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee, speaking to Israel. Therefore, I will give men for thee and people for thy life. These ancient lands, Sheba, Egypt, and Ethiopia, were indeed overrun by Nubians, as history attests, before the end of the 8th century BC, the same century in which Isaiah prophesied. The Egyptians, the Sabians, and the Ethiopians are no longer white, because Yahweh gave them up to his enemies long ago. For that reason alone does Yahweh ask in Jeremiah, about 150 years after Isaiah, can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then you may also do good that are accustomed to doing evil. In reference to the clause, appointing the times ordained in the boundaries of their settlements. This statement proves beyond all reasonable doubt that the remarks here concerning this verse represent biblical facts. For the reference to boundaries in this statement can only be a reference to Deuteronomy 32.8, which the Novum Testamentum Grecae, and the marginal notes found in many editions in the King James Version of the Bible even reference for this verse. And Deuteronomy 32.8 states that when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So no one else but the sons of Adam are being referred to by Paul, where he talks about the nations 
and about God setting the bounds of their habitations. And in turn, Deuteronomy 32.8 can only be referring to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel event, which separated only the descendants of Noah, the white nations listed in Genesis chapter 10. Yet the appointing of the times ordained for these nations can only be seen in the books of the prophets, and especially in the prophet Daniel, who prophesied the rise and fall of a series of great empires built upon the Genesis 10 nations. In Daniel chapter 2, the prophet interprets a dream from the book of Nezar, and tells him that he shall rule over the earth wheresoever the children of men dwell. The Babylonians indeed held sway over the entire Adamic world at the time. But they never, the Book of Nezer never ruled over the non-white races. The non-white races are not at all considered in the biblical context as the children of men. The Book of Nezer never ruled over the Chinese. He never ruled over the Negroes of sub-Saharan Africa. He never ruled over the Indians. He never ruled over the squat monsters in South America. He never ruled over the redskins in North America. So they can't be the children of men. Because God promised in the book of Nazar that he would rule wheresoever the children of men dwell which was in Mesopotamia and the adjoining lands around the Mediterranean. The non-white races are not at all considered in the biblical context as the children of men. Daniel chapter 4 records a pronouncement of Nebuchadnezzar thusly, the book of Nezar, the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. Yet no non-white races were the recipients of that pronouncement. Likewise, Luke wrote, as the King James Version has it, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Yet no non-white alien nations were ever under Roman rule except that there were a number of mongrel, Canaanite, and Arab peoples on the fringes of the Roman world at this time. And the Canaanites had infiltrated many cities. The Bible would call them tares. However, the blacks of Africa, the browns and yellows of the Orient, the browns and reds of the Americas, they are all outside of the biblical context. They didn't fit into the picture of all the world. They weren't taxed by Caesar. They weren't ruled over by Nebuchadnezzar because they didn't fit into the picture because they weren't men. And they still aren't men. And they didn't come from one. And they're not found in Genesis chapter 10. So they can't be referred to here by Paul of Tarsus. They are outside of the biblical context and none of them ever belong in it. Unless, of course, they're a scourge or a punishment. But they're never called man. 
Paul's reference to every nation of men cannot be taken outside of the same biblical context to which Paul himself is referring. The phrase, every nation of men, can only refer to the sons of Adam, of Deuteronomy 32.8 and Genesis chapter 10. Verse 28. For in him we live and we move and we are, even as some of the poets have said concerning you, for we are also his offspring, or for we are also of his offspring. The Codex Vaticanus has concerning us. One example of such a statement is found in nearly verbatim Greek, in the works of Herodotus, the Greek differs by only a single letter from the New Testament, in Phenomena, line 5, which the Novum Testamentum Greca also cites here. And I will quote from Phenomena, a work by the poet Herodotus, lines 1 through 7, from the Loeb Classical Library Edition. Herodotus wrote in the 3rd century B.C., from Zeus, let us begin. Him do we mortals never leave unnamed. Full of Zeus are all the streets and all the marketplaces of men. Full is the sea and the havens thereof. Always we all have need of Zeus, for we are also his offspring. And he in his kindness unto men gives favorable signs and wakens the people to work, reminding them of their livelihood. Of course, Zeus is cognate with the Latin word deus, or, or deus, deus, D-E-U-S. And surely the words are related, because the Greek declensions of the word Zeus begin with the letter D and not with the letter Z in the dative and accusative cases, and the genitive case. Zeus being an nominative, it's an irregular noun. It has a clear connection to the Latin word deus, which means God. The statement's intended meaning where Paul says, for we are also his offspring, is repeated often in the Greek poets. And Paul is taking advantage of Greek literature, which he can do because he's, he's educated in it. He's taking advantage of Greek literature and their own beliefs. Where we do see many biblical ideas imperfectly repeated in order to persuade the sophisticated Athenians or the sophistic Athenians. Aratus was a Colichian by birth. One source even says he was from Tarsus. And he studied among the elite philosophers and poets of Athens in the 3rd century B.C. Verse 29. Therefore, being the offspring of God, we are not obligated to esteem gold or silver or stone, engraved crafts, and of the inventions of man to be like that of the God. We shouldn't worship idols. This is the same argument which the martyr Stephen made to the Judeans, recorded in Acts chapter 7 in reference to the temple, right? Verse 30. 
Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. As he saith, as saith the prophet, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith Yahweh? Or what is the place of my rest? Paul again presented this argument to the Hebrews concerning Christ in chapter 9 of his epistle to them. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So he makes the same argument to the Athenians, that the God who created heaven and earth, the God which the Athenian writers, which Aratus actually acknowledged, even if by another name, can't build in temples, can't dwell in temples made with hands, or objects made by hands shouldn't be worshipped in place of that God. Verse 30. So therefore the times of ignorance God is overlooking. Now altogether he instructs man everywhere to repent. For that he has established a day in which he is going to judge the inhabited earth in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, having provided an assurance to all, raising him from the dead. That word assurance is the word pistis, which is often translated as faith. It's also an assurance a sign of the surety or certainty of something, trustworthy. That Yahweh instructs men everywhere to repent, in reference to Adamic men, in Jonah chapter 3, we see a similar appeal in the commands which he gave to the prophet concerning the men of Nineveh, who were Assyrians, who were descendants of that Asher, the son of Shem, who was listed in a genealogy in Genesis 10.22. Now the things which I am about to discuss, I will offer no citations for, because they are found throughout all ancient Greek literature, from Homer and Hesiod down through the tragic poets, the lyric poets, the bucolic poets, the elegaic poets, they're in all the poets. And they remained among certain of the later sects as the Greeks became more sophisticated and many of them became more secular as the Greeks grew fragmented in their beliefs and philosophies. So these things are in all of the early writings, but the later philosophers, many of them diverged from the early traditions. The early Greeks believed in an afterlife and the eternal beings of the spirits of men. And that in the afterlife, those spirits retained their personalities and the memories of their earthly lives. Upon death, men were judged by the gods for the lives that they led. Those who were evil went to Tartarus, over which realm the demon named Hades was lord and master. And they would suffer eternally. This is the Hebrew, Hebrew Sheol, or the Germanic Niflheim, or the Sumerian Underworld, 
The heroes would go to Olympus and live with the gods. Or sometimes they even became gods themselves. This is similar to the fates of Enoch or Elijah. And it's like the Germanic Valhalla, the hall of the heroes. The good, the Greeks believed, were sent to the Isles of the Blessed, also called the Elysian Fields, which, according to Homer, were imagined to exist in the Western Ocean, well beyond the limits of the Greek oikumene. This is, of course, tantamount to the commonly perceived ideas of the Hebrew heaven. The ancient Sumerian and Akkadian inscriptions also professed very similar beliefs, as did the Egyptian. However, each branch of the original white race made their own elaborations upon the core beliefs which they shared, which were those concerning an eternal life following this mortal life, and a punishment or a reward for one's deeds done in mortal life. In the Christian context, the way that resurrection and the judgment of the dead were taught was new to the Athenians. But the basic ideas of resurrection and judgment themselves were not new to the Athenians. They were very old themes throughout all of the Athenian poets, all of the ancient poets. Verse 32, And hearing of a resurrection of the dead, some mocked him, but others said, We shall hear you concerning this also again. Now that the Athenians would mock the idea of a resurrection from the dead is a rebuke not of some novel and foreign idea, but of many of their own most ancient myths, in which the theme of resurrection from the dead occurs often. For instance, Zeus was said to have slain the physician Asclepius, who was later worshipped as a god of healing because Zeus was angry at him for bringing the dead to life. That story is recounted by the poet and compiler Apollodorus of Athens in the 2nd century B.C., about 200 years before Paul. Again, Heracles was said to have descended to Hades to rescue the dead Alcestis, returning her alive to her husband Admetus a story which was the subject of a play entitled Alcestis for the heroine, written by Euripides, who was one of the three great tragic poets of ancient Athens. It was written in the 5th century BC. The play won second place in the Athenian festival, where it debuted in 438 BC. The writings of both these men these are only two examples out of many. They reflect beliefs which are found throughout Greek writings from the time of Homer. And both of these men were Athenians. The men of Athens, in all their worldly wisdom, had broken from their own most ancient traditions, pagan or not. Those traditions, pagan or not, reflected general religious beliefs. which are found not only in the Hebrew Bible, but in all of the earliest tradition of our Adamic race, in the earliest literature 
of our Adamic race. Verse 33. Thusly Paul departed from their midst, from their midst, and some men joining themselves to him believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now an Areopagite was a member of the Areopagus. He was a member of the court on which, which was held on Ayers Hill, and therefore Dionysius was a jurist. He, he was a jurist. The court of the Areopagus was of great antiquity, spoken of as having existed even in mythical times, as we've seen from Euripides. It is mentioned several times by Theodorus Siculus in his his Library of History, in books 1, 4, and 11. It's mentioned frequently in other Greek literature. In Acts chapter 17, and his address to the Athenians, just as in Acts chapter 14 and his brief address to the Lycaonians, we see the truth of our Christian identity interpretation of the Bible fully reflected in the words of Paul of Tarsus as they were recorded by the Apostle Luke. It should be fully evident that Paul, in all of his epistles, except the epistle to the Hebrews, was addressing the lost children of Israel. Whether they were Trojan Romans, Dorian Greeks, or Celtic Galatians. The proof of this statement is readily evident in the language of those epistles. For instance, in Romans chapter 1, where Paul explained that the Romans once had the truth of God, but had turned it into lies. Or in Romans chapter 4, where Paul tells the Romans that they descended from Abraham. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul explains to those people that their fathers had been in the exodus with Moses. Or in Galatians chapter 4, where Paul tells them that the law had at one time been their schoolmaster and that Christ came to redeem them that were under the law. Or in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul explains that they had at one time been alienated from Israel, but were now in Christ. Or in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul explains that they too had been alienated from Israel, but were now being reconciled through Christ. Yet, in Acts chapter 14, Paul addressed Lycaonians, who were not Israelites, but who were ostensibly descended from the ancient Thracians and Lydians, who were in turn the descendants of the Japhethite Tyrus of Genesis 10.2 and the Shemitic Lud of Genesis 10.22. And here in Acts chapter 17, Paul is not addressing Israelites, but Athenians, who are Ionians, who are a tribe of Japhethites descended from Javan, of Genesis 10.2 and 10.4. In Joel 3.6, the Hebrew word for Javan was incorrectly translated in the King James Version as Grecians. 
where when it should have been more accurately Ionians, because the Ionians were only one tribe of Grecians. For this reason, because the Ionian Athenians, like the Lycaonians, are Adamic peoples, they're Genesis 10 peoples, but they are not Israelites. Paul addresses them quite differently from the Romans, the Dorians, and the Celts, whom he established, among whom he established Christian assemblies, only calling to mind their common descent from Adam. Where he addresses the Lycaonians and the Athenians, he only calls to mind their common descent from Adam. And the events from Scripture pertaining to them which are recorded in Genesis chapter 11 and mentioned in Deuteronomy 32.8, which we see here in verse 26, and telling them that they too are offspring of Yahweh, the God of Scripture, which we see here in verses 28 and 29. And therefore they also have a share in the assurance of the resurrection, which we see here in verse 31. That the other branches, the non-Israelite branches of the Adamic race are also resurrected. We have the testimony of Christ himself in Matthew 12, verses 41 and 42, and in Luke 11, verses 31 and 32. The first promise of eternal life was made to all of the Adamic race, as it is found in Genesis 3.22. And now, lest he, meaning Adam, put forth his hand, and take also the tree of life, and eat and live forever. However, Paul does not talk to the Lycaonians or to the Essenians about redemption. Not one word. Or about Moses, or about the Hebrew law. Not one word. Or about alienation from God caused by disobedience. Not at all. Or about the need for obedience to the law in Christ? Not one word. Or about reconciliation? Or about the relationship, the marriage relationship of Israel to Yahweh? Not one word. Or about any of the other things found in Scripture which can only apply to the descendants of the ancient Israelites. Paul only preached to them that they would cease from idolatry and seek the one true God of creation. Therefore, this discourse, as well as the one which Paul made to the Lycaonians in Acts chapter 14, establishes that the tenets of Christian faith indeed apply just as they are taught in Christian identity, and only as they are taught in Christian identity. Because these things are taught nowhere else amongst the mainstream denominational sects, which have forever been ignorant of any of these most important details of Scripture. Paul of Tarsus taught a Christian identity gospel. He taught reconciliation. He taught the law. He taught the marriage relationship. 
He taught the need for obedience. He taught all those things to the Greek and other European tribes, which descended from the children of Israel, as can be told in the classical histories and in Scripture together. He didn't teach those things to those other white people, those other real white people, those other white people descended from those other Genesis 10 nations who were outside of the covenants with Israel, but within the covenants made with Adamic man from Genesis 3.22. With that, I thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren discussing Genesis chapter 3. Yahweh willing, I will be here next week with Acts chapter 18. Praise Yahweh, and good night.